1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion.
0: The Earth forms.
1: Cambrian 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary 65 million.
0: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
1: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene 200,000. Humans 20,000.
2: Agricultural
1: 250. Revolution.
2: Industrial revolution. 60. great
1: animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene. This is Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm your host, Mike Osborne. Today on the show, we're featuring Gordon Hempton, also known as the Sound Tracker. He's traveled all over the world recording the sounds of the Earth. This story was first brought to our attention by Jackie Mogensen, and as we were researching Gordon's experiences, we discovered that he's actually losing his hearing. Obviously, this posed a problem for an audio interview. So we emailed Gordon, and he proposed that Jackie and I send him questions, and that he then record his answers into a kind of audio diary. He also offered to include some of his original recordings that he's collected over the decades. He sent us the audio files, and our producer Leslie Chang edited and mixed his story. The last thing to note here is that, if you're like us, you probably listen to podcasts while you're commuting, exercising, doing dishes, or whatever. This is just a suggestion, but... We recommend that this one might be best listened to at home or at least in a peaceful place. It's just a different kind of listening experience, and we think a really special story. We hope you enjoy.
2: This is Gordon Hempton. I'm speaking to you from my home in Joyce, Washington. It's a yurt. It's a membrane structure that's supported with ray beams that head out in all directions and then are held all together by a single cable that circles the yurt i'm having tea because it's the middle of the night I got up intentionally for this interview because during the day it's too noisy inside of my home because I'm only six-tenths of a mile from Highway 112. It's hard to imagine, I know, that a sound can transform someone's life, Um, but it certainly did mine. Let's listen to a recording that I made uh, years ago uh, and selected largely because it's very close to the sound experience, which changed everything about who I was and and who I was going to become. I was making a long drive from Seattle, Washington to Madison, Wisconsin to study plant pathology. I thought I was going to become a plant pathologist. And as most students, I wasn't about to pull over and pull into a motel because that was pretty much equivalent to a week's worth of groceries. So exhausted, I pulled off to the side of the interstate and took a side road. Laid down in a field just to take some rest. Hearing the thunder, the fine, the far reaches of the valley, I didn't even have to turn my head or do anything. I just laid on the ground watched the storm develop and pass over me and drenched me and I guess you could say that was my baptism. And when it was all over I only had one question, which was how could I be 27 years old and have never truly listened before. Well, life has its way of developing. Um, Even when something big like that happened for me, I still had plans, a lot of momentum. And I continued with graduate school, but only for a short while because I had this new yardstick, this new measure of significance in my life that I felt, you know, I'm living someone else's life. I don't know what my life is, but this paint-by-numbers plan of who you're going to be is just not working for me. So I dropped out of graduate school and returned home to Seattle. And well, you know, I had a a debt and everything like that. So I became a, a commercial fisherman, a deckhand on board and sailed to Alaska and did whatever means I could to continue with my single goal at that time which was simply to be a better listener, and that's still my goal today. In my career as the sound tracker, I have circled the globe three times, and I've recorded on every continent except Antarctica. And as I've listened to the Earth, I've noticed that the... Tropics are very loud if we listen to the Amazon, for example. And now we'll move further north into Belize. And even further north into the state of Georgia is where we begin to notice a much bigger difference as the same amount of sunlight that reaches the tropics is now spread over a much larger area because of the curvature of the earth. And now let's go even further to the Eastern Washington area. Everything gets so spacious. It's not just about the sound, but it's about something that I call the poetics of space. Well, this helps explain what I call the solar-powered jukebox, and that's Earth. That the more sunlight that reaches the surface of the Earth, the louder the Earth plays, provided that the solar panels are there the green leaves, to harvest the sun's energy and cycle it into the bioacoustic system. Well, on this solar jukebox Earth, we can not only choose our latitude or the relative loudness and because of the way that species are distributed over the surface of the Earth as we move to weaker polar areas, we also lower the species diversity or the number of performers, we can go through different habitats, and now let's listen to the same, essentially the same latitude as eastern Washington, except uh, in the central part of the continent, and this is Grasslands National Park in Saskatchewan. The Earth is music. So many of us, including myself, don't hear nature as music much anymore because it's been so impacted by noise pollution. I define noise as basically any human-caused noise intrusion. Now that is a a broad definition, and there are exceptions, of course. I do not count the human voice so long as it's just not chattering away as noise pollution. In fact, I enjoy the sounds of footsteps. I enjoy the sounds of people's arms and legs shuffling. The difference between a natural sound and noise pollution is a a, a couple of things. But first of all, it is a degree of meaningful information. What does it tell me? And how much of the frequency spectrum is it taking me up to deliver a message? So in the case of transportation noise, it's very broad spectrum. It has a heavy impact on other communication it's also loud so all the faint sounds are removed those meaningful sounds are removed so it takes meaning information flow away from me so that's simply why I call it noise Uh, think about this all animals have the ability to hear Um, not all animals have the ability to see if you're going to be a species on planet Earth uh, an animal species, a higher vertebrate, um, you do need to be able to hear. And this is because sound is created by events, and these sounds uh, travel in every direction, day or night, around corners, through uh, sight-blinding vegetation. And the sound is information, information that could be very relevant to your survival, whether it's to find food, prosperity, to uh, avoid predation. And it's so dangerous to unplug from this constant uh, news and information flow that coverings of the ears, similar to eyelids or covering of the eyes, never evolve. Not once do we find in the fossil record. The presence of earlids. What I particularly enjoy about silence and quiet, and I define that as the absence of noise pollution, is just. hmm, just listen. We hear a vehicle. What is that vehicle telling us? Not very much. If that were the hoot of an owl, that would not be noise pollution. And that hoot, being brief, would not only alert me to the presence of that owl, but the way the echo would travel through the forest and the hills here, would tell me a lot about the air quality, whether or not the midnight air has yet set up into these transmissive layers. Let's start with this recording of an American toad. Now that's the way we hear the American toad. Now science has studied the hearing of the American toad. And since our hearing, every species hearing, evolved as a data extraction um, tool, if you will, uh, to gain information that is survival relevant out of the environment, let's um, let's listen to that same recording and the, these american toads by the way were singing um, in a cemetery a pioneer cemetery in the middle of a forest in tennessee in springtime and uh, boy, I was up all night just listening to them and recording them it was beautiful but let's listen to the same recording after it's been equalized to simulate what the toads hear. The toads are much louder, which means that the voice of the toad is important for other toads. And because they're louder than we hear toads, it's, they're more important to each other than they are to us but also where we didn't really notice the hoot of the owl before we hear the hoot of the owl much better now the owl is one of their predators so hearing not only allows us to communicate with each other but before we have the opportunity to communicate we first have to be alive So fundamental is that hearing is an ability to extract information from the environment that will allow us to survive, and then once we're surviving, allow us to communicate. So this raises a really interesting question. Um, How about our own ears? What did our ears evolve to hear? our audible range of hearing is from 20 vibrations per second to 20,000 vibrations per second. So we have a huge range, but we don't hear all those frequencies uh, with the same degree of loudness when we listen to a recording that has them all at the same energy level. We discovered that our hearing has actually evolved uh, during the time of our distant ancestors, to hear some sounds more easily, much more easily, in fact, than other sounds. And the way I listen to that information is to say, okay, well, there are some sounds which have greater importance to us uh, than other sounds, much like the toads. So I created this composition in the studio where we start out with Frogs and toads, and then insects uh, for them to eat, and birds, and start piling in all these nature sounds, and then also sources of uh, noise pollution, and then end up with adding some music from Makana, one of my favorite uh, performers, a Hawaiian slack key guitarist and songwriter. And uh, then I step on the whole thing with our peak hearing sensitivity, which is two kilohertz to five kilohertz, the resonant frequencies of the auditory canals, that the shape of our ears have actually changed to extract some sounds more easily than other sounds from the ambient environment. So let's listen to this whole recording, and then discover what it is that our ears evolve to hear. It's birdsong. And <laughs> I think I have the answer to why our distant ancestors would need to hear birdsong in order to best survive. The The fast answer is that birdsong is the number one indicator of habitats prosperous for humans. If the birds are singing, there's food and water in a long enough favorable season for the young to be raised uh, from the nest so if you can imagine our nomadic ancestors trying to make critical decisions on which direction they're going to head off to and if they would just listen quietly at dawn they would most likely be able to detect birdsong if it was present. Head off in that direction and here we are today. Most of my recordings uh, that I made in the early 80s uh, cannot be made today, uh, simply because of noise pollution, but also because of habitat loss and quality, and I suspect that if I were to go back and suddenly be able to uh, wave this magic wand so the multiple land uses would stop, pause, that the Farm tractors would stop, uh, the planes would stop, the ships would stop, the trains would stop, that the wildlife themselves would sound differently. And their singing would be simpler, just like our own lives. This loss of meaning from our lives is pretty darn significant, especially when we know from evolution that hearing is more important than any other sense for animals in the way that at least it is present. Hearing often precedes all the other senses in our data extraction from the environment. We hear something, then we turn, look in the direction of which that sound came from gather more information Um, if it still attracts us we might step further uh, might even touch it pick it up smell it and then make the ultimate commitment which perhaps is to taste it let's listen to this, This is a recording that I call Cathedral. a It's an ancient uh, cedar grove, the last remaining grove in Pacific County. The hundreds of square miles around it have been logged, and this is the last stand. It's also the home of the northern spotted owl, which I successfully recorded uh, that year after six weeks. Kind of a long story, but... uh, the, the pair, which went through their whole repertoire, um, they died that year. Uh, when I listen, I have to be quiet. I cannot listen for something. I just take every sound in with equal value. And the longer I remain there, typically a recording session will be for hours that I'm entirely motionless, not even swatting a mosquito. That would risk spoiling a recording, and that's just one session of which I'll be recording several times a day for days and often two weeks at a time that I become very quiet, very peaceful and very inspired by what it means to be alive on planet Earth. Let's listen again to the Amazon, this time to the Ecuadorian Amazon. We are 1,200 miles from anywhere. If I were to get lost here, and I did, but only briefly, I could walk 1,200 miles before hitting another village or crossing a road. And even here, there are eight to 10 jet overflights per day. There is no place on planet Earth that's free from noise pollution. I cannot see further than about 150 feet, even through the cracks of the branches and the trees. The forest is so dense. But I can hear for miles. Let's listen to this recording of the humpback well. Sound travels ten times um, more easily through water than it does through air, and the underwater uh, half of our world is certainly as busy communicating as we are. And I really enjoy listening to the humpback whale because you know it's just so expressive. I wish I could be a humpback whale, and <laughs> and just and just you know, express myself that way. Yeah. And because sound travels uh, so easily through water, so does noise pollution, there are huge consequences coming. When we take a resource that is as essential as food or water, and that's the acoustic environment, the ability to get information from the world and to express ourselves. And we start turning it into an impossible uh, communication environment through our noise pollution. There are huge consequences for wildlife, very much. If you wanna become a better listener I can give you suggestions on how to be a better listener. And certainly I highly recommend it if you go to a true wilderness because while all animals hear, not all listen, and those that don't are eaten by those that do. If you want to become a better listener, um, the easiest way of doing it that I know is to hoist a preschooler on your shoulders and go for a night walk because we're born listeners. They'll tell you everything you need to know about becoming a better listener. And the second thing you can do, which is how I've tried to become a better listener, is to hold a microphone in your hand. because the microphone doesn't have a brain and that's the problem with me is that I have a brain and my brain is busy with its bad habits of listening for what's important rather than taking all things in with equal value but a funny thing happens when I listen through a microphone is I give instantly immediately all sounds equal value so it's kind of funny you know you th- you think you're in a quiet place and then you listen through the microphone you go oh my god there's so much going on <laughs> and then you take off the headphones and you listen with your naked ear and it's like yeah there's a lot going on <laughs> I could have just listened in the first place. But, you know, bad habits, they're hard to break. Quiet places, places that are free of noise pollution, have been going through a systematic process of extinction. Here in the United States, besides the tripling of air travel since the 1980s and the forecasted doubling of, before 2025, um, we've had a development of scenic highways, scenic byways, our interstate transportation system. It's astounding how quickly this country has become overwhelmed by noise with so little noise study that scientists have basically been concerned in the past decades uh, ago uh, with the fact of of noise uh, reducing our ability to hear. We now know, though, that noise also reduces our ability to listen. The quietest place on Earth is Haleakala Crater. And when I say quietest, I, I mean both... Um, to certain degree uh, free of noise pollution and also the lowest decibels. Um, and Haleakala Crater is really an otherworldly experience that I think everybody would find interesting for a little while. While you go under um, sonic <laughs> noise detox, At last count, there are 12 places within the continental United States where it's possible to have, at dawn, a noise-free experience for greater than 15 minutes, and uh, that is the list of last great quiet places of which Olympic National Park is one of those places. Um, One square inch in particular, the place I'm trying to save. uh, There is not one place yet on planet Earth which is set aside off-limits to noise pollution and we at the One Square Inch of Silence Foundation hope to change that. Um, Light pollution is sort of the evil cousin of noise pollution and we have uh, places that are protected from ambient light pollution dark sky program which is an international program and I think it's about time that we had that joined um, by quiet places. This is a piece I enjoy very much, a uh, piece that I recorded. It's a, it's a document, I, th- and this is at Dorland Mountain Arts Colony. Um, I arrived to work on the culmination of a two-year project, which was uh, recording the sounds that John Muir writes about in his journals and putting it into one piece, and I arrived at Dorland, and I was listening to all the highway noise and everything. They told me that this was a quiet place. And I was like uh, staying up all night going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. and I'm going to be here for six weeks. How am I going to handle this? And then I noticed that there were a couple of long PVC pipes. And so I attached these PVC pipes just to hear what I could hear and against my microphone system and it radically transformed uh, the experience of noise into the experience of music. And I thought, oh, wow. So our ears really do make a difference. And I then uh, purchased myself a couple of PVC pipes, which I still haul around with me today on top of my uh, VW bus. Uh, um, (laughs) and pull out under a wide variety of circumstances uh, to alter my ears or augment my ears to transform um, what I would say are ugly sonic environments into something more interesting and beautiful. Um, Just more, though, not completely, never as beautiful as just a a living um, soundscape. But do I call myself an artist? Do I consider myself an artist? No. I am, however, the soundtracker. One of the biggest uh, challenges uh, for me uh, has been the way I hear the world. Now, there's a big difference between hearing and listening. Even a deaf person can listen. In fact, a deaf person can be a better listener than um, non hearing impaired people. But I've, uh, right now, I'm in the middle of my second hearing loss. Um, I'm on the process of recovery. I will play for you this recording, and then I will treat it with an equalization curve to simulate uh, the hearing loss that I have, just so you can get an idea. it's a big difference Um, i know from my notes um, and by looking at the display on my computer that this is a very detailed recording Uh, this is one of my favorite recordings of the uh, sinharaja rainforest at night where the insects and frogs weave these beautiful textures, and uh, that is certainly one of my favorite places of listening in the world. And then with my hearing loss, almost all of it uh, has vanished, except for the fact that I can detect that something is going on. So how do I deal with the lack of meaning, that information flow, that data extraction from my environment. Well, I know that um, if I were a wild animal in a thriving ecosystem, that I would simply cease to exist. And I'd have to accept that. I'd know that my hearing loss as well as a listening loss would result in my loss. These recordings are made out there in the real world and most of these recordings have never been heard before by anyone other than myself. I've amassed this huge library over the last three decades uh, knowing that these soundscapes were quickly vanishing and now for the first time bringing them into the world through the Quiet Planet Library, which uh, is a library, sound library, um, that I hope uh, lots of producers will now use in their documentaries and, and for soundtrack development um, and bring the music, the information of the natural world back into our modern lives and we will become changed there's no question about it we still are deeply wild inside of us each one of us and i think we quickly notice what we truly need everybody hears differently i have to remember that And if you doubt that everybody, even with tested normal hearing, hears differently, all you have to do is cup your hand behind one of your ears and notice how differently you hear. Or even take a finger and put it behind one ear and bend it slightly and notice how the sound changes. And look around the room, how many different ears are there? So even though we're talking about sound and assuming that we're all having the same experience, we aren't. I no longer um, tried to hear what other people were hearing. Listen for what they're describing. I just simply try to hear what I hear, even if it's impaired, and work with what I like. And that's all I can do. The earth is music, very definitely. Um. The Earth, besides being a solar powered jukebox, it's just so amazing to think that as the sun rise has been circling the planet since the beginning of time, lifting off this wave of bird song that this endless planetary tune that's continued to evolve with the evolution of life itself and continues to circle even today is one of the most beautiful compositions I I think about it every morning when I get up to witness sunrise um, that I'm part of this global performance I love that no matter where I am it's just so uplifting and inspiring. Um, I particularly enjoy dawn because it's a time that we wake up and remember our dreams. you know what's What's our dream? <whistles> Planetary tunes continue to go on. I've also recorded the evening chorus, Circle the Planet, the night concert, Circle the Planet. I've attempted to record, although it's a much bigger project, uh, the undulations of the seasons as they ripple back and forth across the equator into the temperate latitudes. Oh, that's just the cycling of that is just so beautiful and the ocean, the ocean is a drum beating out these atmospheric weather changes and all the great drums of the world beating and the vibrations as they reach the distant shores. I think what I enjoy most of all about listening, now that I've reached the end of this interview, is that I disappear. When I truly listen, I disappear.